Good morning. It's Friday, December 4th, 2015. This is a Tech Talk Today, freaking 225. How does that even happen? I don't know. I don't know how that happens, but it's a good thing we're here today because we have a lot of things to cover. Our first story is a bit spooky. Even though it's December, it's a little spooky. So let's get started by bringing in our mumble room. Time appropriate greeting, mumble room. Hello. Hello. Tip, tip. And Ange. <laughs> Hello. So you're in the mumble room this week. How does that feel, Ange? Do you feel like uh, you're like more like disconnected and just like an observant voice uh, out in space, or or does it feel just like regularly doing the show? It's going to be. It's weird, but I'm I'm happy for it because I think we might have to do women's tech radios this way oh, yeah? for a little yeah. while. So um, I actually was curious how it was going to feel. Oh well, that's interesting. Well, I'll get you a different mic before you do women's tech radio. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All yeah, right. Okay. So now I I related to these people until I realized they're Canadian, and now I I, I don't relate to them at all. But before then, no, I'm kidding. Before then, I really felt for these people because I went through this on the road trip. This is a bigger deal than I think people realize, and so I wanted to start this week with this story, not because it's news breaking and it's it's just boom, 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 because really there's nothing too huge this week, but because I think if you stop and think about it, it puts cloud computing and smartphones and all of that stuff in a little more perspective. There is a town that has no no cell phone services and just lost its internet service provider. In Stewart, B.C., residents are going without internet for weeks. Are you guys freaking out? Get ready. It's, uh, It's for weeks. Uh, anyways, okay. No, you're not freaking out? I'm kind of freaking out. Their broadband provider shut down, leaving the remote Canadian district of about 500 residents with severely limited access to the internet. It may take at least a few weeks to get replacement for their internet service provider who went out of business. Like, TELUS is going to be coming in there. But, you know, I, I look at this story, and I, I think to myself... All of the all of this talk about uh, Uber and disruption and apps and all of the money going into these companies right now and how none of it matters, how the cloud doesn't matter, how Google's data collection stops mattering when you do not have internet service. And this is this is an extremely common thing throughout the United States. I drove through huge portions of South Dakota and North Dakota and Montana and Wyoming. These are large states, especially Montana. With no internet, no cell signal, nothing, and I'm talking three different, ser- four different, four different service providers. Nothing. Sounds like being at my mom's house. Yeah, or your mom's house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's even areas around us, isn't there? Yeah, where where I'm staying at right now, one cell provider works out of all of them. It is not that far. You don't have to go that far, and all of a sudden, all of the progress. And the whole smartphone revolution that we're all caught up in right now feels like it's completely undone. And this article over at ours, I'll have a link to the show notes if you guys want to go read it, kind of brought that home to me. Daredevil, and your thoughts, sir? There is, there, this type of situation is exactly what made EU sign a deal with China because apparently there's like 800 million people uncovered between both uh, areas. Yeah. And look at that number. You think, oh, my God, 800 million is a big number. And it reminds me, you know, you see like uh, oh, like North Ranger saying uh, most cell phone, cell phone providers get away with saying 90% coverage of the nation because they put it around where like the most populated regions are. Uh, I just – I don't know what my so – the, so the few folks that do have internet service in this town are like uh, the mayor. <laughs> the mayor's office is online via satellite. Uh, Brooke, uh, see her name is Burke. Burke said she's uh, the last name. Still has satellite internet at home, and she's happy with the service, except for the data caps that are on the service, which caused her to disable automatic updates on her home computers and the mayor's office computers. So no Fact. security updates. That's the other thing. Daredevil, uh, your other yeah, thought. The other question is how much they actually use. I mean, if it's such a remote region, usually people that are so isolated or not so connected. There is either a massive usage comparative to the rest of the population or, none. or a very <laughs> yeah. little none. Exactly. Yeah. Because now they have other things to Yeah, that's true. So, well, yeah, uh, the business went down. Probably was the usage wasn't so high to justify the existence of the business. Let's talk about uh, let's talk about data caps. Let's talk about data caps. These are a hot button issue right now, and Comcast is testing the limits with its new innovative streaming service called Stream. Yeah, Comcast has launched Stream, um, and guess what? When you stream things from Comcast Stream, it doesn't count against your cap. 
That's right. Comcast services don't come. No, no problem. Oh, you only you only can do 300 gigabytes. Don't worry. Stop watching Netflix. Stop watching YouTube and watch it from stream. That doesn't count against your cap. So, of course, uh, TechDirt thought, you know, this sounds a little like anti-net neutrality going on. These net neutrality rules just got put in place. What the hell is going on here? So some some uh, journalists reached out to Comcast's uh, spokesholes, and uh, the company is commenting. Now, just if you're not quite familiar with its creatively named video service called Stream, Stream provides Comcast broadband-only users with a $15 service a month that includes live TV, video on demand, and HBO. It's Comcast's new way of saying, hey, cut the cord a little differently. And uh, when uh, Comcast was contacted about it, they said, no, Stream is an IP cable service delivered over our managed network to the home. Stream TV is cable streaming delivered over our own cable system, not over the Internet. Therefore, Stream TV data usage will not be counted towards your Xfinity Internet monthly data usage. Because, you see, it's over their own network. It's over their, it's over their cable network, not over the expensive interconnects, which they own. Its caps are now cover, uh, Comcast caps now cover an estimated 12% of its user base, and that's growing. They show no signs of slowing down anytime soon, with dozens of more markets slated for caps starting, um, well, on December 1st, actually. Uh, and there were some vague rumors the FCC was watching Comcast cap expansions, expansion plans, but really they've done nothing so far. The zero rate is a very particular hot-button issue for me because we also see uh, T-Mobile doing it with its uh, – filthy binge program that makes you sound like a slob and uh, also making music streaming free to their buddies as long as they can uh, inspect all of your packets and then re-encode it for you. And Daredevil, and this, uh, this free kind of stuff, the zero rating or whatever you want to call it, this is an interesting twist to the net neutrality debate, isn't it? For me, it, it actually is just because we have allowed for for them to be stranglehold on a position that they couldn't, you know, having the paper zero rated. So they're, now they're finding loopholes on the law. Mm-hmm. But I think zero rated can can actually work well if the actual, let's say, Netflix pays for the bandwidth. But it has to be paid. Like the telco cannot have a business in that field, but the the whatever service wants to have zero rate pays for it. And I feel that it's the same thing when Amazon pays you for shipment when you are buying something from Amazon. So if I'm Netflix and I'm paying for shipment of that content to you, seems that's something that I, I as a business should be able to do. Now, when uh, in the Amazon's, sense though, but is it really the yeah. same when when you're shipping when shipping goods is shipping involves a limited resource that's fuel and the driver's time and the truck and you know there's a there's a there's a pretty big overhead on delivering a package versus delivering a packet and there's a there's a constant infrastructure reinvestment in the trucks and the licensing and all of that that has to be made for a delivery business where for a telco like comcast let's be honest all of them are way under investing in their infrastructure and they're milking it for tons of revenue and 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 their revenue forecasts and results obviously make that very, very clear. Their, their R&D in, in infrastructure and their investment in infrastructure is way, way, way down, and their revenue is way, 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 way up. And so they are milking the switch, the switch infrastructure they put in a decade ago, and they're making, the same, they're making more money today than they've ever made delivering the same bits. But this is exactly what I mean. The telco provider should only be able to provide service, not actually be able to go and participate into using the business itself. Mm, mm-hmm. And then, in this sense, you can allow companies that want to pay for the transfer. But meanwhile, but in reality, though, now not only is that so far from the case, Comcast owns NBC. Yeah, that, that makes things fuzzy. Yeah, and definitely. Yeah, yeah. Complicated. <laughs> Contradicting, yeah. Uh, Angela, I wanted to, you know, I I think you may not even consider yourself a cord cutter anymore because we cut the cord so long ago before people called it that. You you have been living via streaming services and uh, other means for online consumption of content now for what, seven years, eight years, uh, Mm -hmm. and maybe more. And so if Comcast or Frontier, in your case, came along and said, 
Uh, excuse me, Mrs. Fisher. Uh, we have a new service that improves your internet, but also includes a 250 gigabyte cap. It would probably mean you might have to cut some of your consumption in half of the stuff that's able to watch or what the kids can stream from Netflix. How would you, what, how would you alter your behavior if all of a sudden you had to half your internet usage? Boy, um, you know, I don't know, but this, this is, it just sounds exactly like the, uh, whole, don't don't store your music on your phone anymore just stream it even though you own it like and paying data on the cell phone for that like it seems exactly very similar to that and i don't want to do that um but i don't know i think maybe we just wouldn't watch tv as much you know i could do without the the cable internet this whole time and Mm -hmm. it's great to have streaming consumption but uh i could go without it yeah i could i don't know about the kids but i could (laughs) yeah they'd all just be used for youtube at that point yeah I, I, the net neutrality debate is getting interesting because you've got you've got Comcast and T-Mobile doing the, uh, the, uh, the the kind of like well you know if you do it this way we'll give it to you for free and then on the other end of it you've got AT and T now who swears man you guys we were about to give you some of the best deals of your life but now net neutrality happened and we totally can't do it. Uh, Here's how it goes. They say, they say you see, it, uh, this is BGR reporting. Uh, it planned all along to unveil several awesome promotions, deals, and incentives that would, you would just were going to love. But then the mean old Federal Communications Commission and its mean net neutrality rules had to get involved. As Ars Technica reports, AT&T Senior Vice President Bob Quinn said this week that AT&T had to, plan, had to shelve a bunch of stuff that it wanted to do in fear of running afoul of the SEC's net neutrality rules. Quinn says that every time the company has an idea, and it means these are good ones, it literally has to have 15 lawyers who are trying to figure out whether that stuff we're invested in would be in violation of the order. Oh, man. Sounds like FCC is run by bureaucracy. It sounds like maybe you need to fire a few of those lawyers because they're preventing you from being innovative. Uh, but BGR points out, here's what we do know. The FCC's net neutrality rules haven't stopped carriers from preparing to make major investments in spectrum on the 600 megahertz band. Oh, that's true. He says they haven't stopped T-Mobile from taking on risk and other crazy initiatives like Binge On. I also agree. And he says it hasn't stopped ISPs from making major investments in improving networks. Also true. So we're not quite sure what AT&T had planned to release before mean old FCC got involved. But it was going to be totally awesome, you guys. The best thing ever. So back to the Comcast thing. Are they um, are they offering that, that streaming service only if you also have their internet? Because if it's a separate product, then I think it might not be that bad, bad of an idea. But oh, I agree. Yeah, if you could if have stream paired, and not have their cable TV service, yeah, yeah, yeah fifteen bucks would be good. Doing, mm-hmm. By offering a streaming service while offering internet, they're they're literally just saving money on the internet and making pro- more profit. And you convinced me. Let's get it here at the studio. Your face, you want to make a point about it being back in court. Yeah, it's back in court, and pretty much they're trying to usurp the the rules that were put in place. So all of this that we're talking about could be not an issue. And, hey, let's go back to T-Mobile binging. They just want it for themselves, and they're screwing up the infrastructure for us. So it's just ridiculous that they keep doing this. Mm-hmm. So now, now all I'm hearing from the EFF and other organizations like that is you need to call Congress and tell these people no because they're going to get their way if, if we don't do anything. Hmm. Yeah, and I, I – I, oh, go ahead. There are senators that are actually trying to push the uh, removal of the, of the rules so that they can you know, get more money from the lobbyists. I wanted, I wanted to pick up on the EFF uh, point for a second because I think that's actually interesting. So the EFF is trying to wear, raise awareness about several things, uh, and uh, we're going to have to just wait and see where this net neutrality issue goes. It's going to be it's going to be in and out of the courts probably for years, and there's going to be times where it looks like it's on the ropes, and it's going to look like times where industry is on the ropes. Uh, but I wanted to shift gears while we're talking about the EFF and mention. They're trying to raise awareness about Chromebooks tracking students in schools, not because of tracking search results, but because the Chrome Sync feature is turned on by default on Chromebooks that ship to schools. Uh, and this allows Google to track and store on its servers and data mine for non-advertising purposes, non-advertising purposes, 
records of every internet site the student visits, every search term they use, the results they click on, videos they look for and watch on YouTube, and their saved passwords. Also, Google doesn't first obtain permission to do this, which is interesting because there's a report today by NBC that Chromebooks are freaking crushing it in schools now. Chromebooks have been more than 50% of the devices sold into US K-12 education. And so there have been more Chromebooks sold than any other devices combined. And we're getting to the point where over 30,000 devices are deployed each day into US schools. What's been really interesting is that if you look a couple of years ago, we were only at about 2% of the market. It's been amazing to us to see that growth uh, happen just in that short amount of time. An interesting thing, though, is that it's actually expanding the market. And so if you look at the, the overall market for devices and education, it's, it's expanded by quite a bit, and Chromebooks have actually taken a lot of that expansion. I think what makes a Chromebook unique is the simplicity. It's easy for any user to use it. The shareability, multiple users can use it very, very securely and very easily, and the manageability. But then it's what you do with those devices that's really important. That's where Google Apps for Education and Classroom has really come in. You know, over 50 million students are using Google Apps for Education uh, to do things like, for example, have shared documents between 50 million. multiple students or, or the students and the teacher, and those work very seamlessly on a Chromebook. And we've just introduced Google Classroom, which you can think of as the thing that coordinates all of this, and it's the dashboard that a teacher can go to to manage their entire classroom. One of the great things with Chromebooks is you can individualize education and, and actually teach to the level of the student. A lot of us, when we went to school, we were in the kind of classroom where you had 30 students in the classroom. The teacher would have to explain the same thing to 30 students. If you didn't get the concept, they would just move on to the next. That was the way you had to teach. We're looking at a very different way of learning. Uh, you know, the thing that really excites me is my daughter actually just started kindergarten. And she's actually in a school that's using Chromebooks. And it's been really interesting for me to see how her education is now individualized, how she can challenge herself where she's ready, she can get extra help where she's not ready. And that's been really amazing to see. And so it really even affects me at a personal level. So Chromebooks are crushing it, you guys. This is ridiculous. Make up half of the devices in classrooms now. Frickin' Chromebooks. And all of them. All of them coming with Google Apps accounts and Google Chrome Sync. It's wonderful. It's amazing. Uh, Daredevil, I'll let you go first. Have at it, sir. I, I think at this point, Google needs to offer some money to Facebook because after all, Facebook desensitizes us on sending our data to these companies in the massive scale that we're doing. So Chromebooks now actually have a, ch a chance of succeeding. It is. They just... They should just make an offer to Facebook. And it, it is really – it's an impossible, impossible, um, impossible scenario for the school districts to deny because there are organizations out there that come to the school districts and say, we will sell you a managed Chromebook program. You'll get a full dashboard. You can manage all of the students' accounts, all of the teacher stuff. Students will be able to work from home or school. All of the work will be synchronized. No more forgetting documents. No more thumb drives that bring viruses in from home and infect the school district. And as long as you buy our managed Chromebook program, every Chromebook that gets damaged will replace for free. We have a revolving replacement program. We replace these Chromebooks. And there is just simply no way a school can say no to $200 per device versus $800 a device or even $699 if you get a really cheap MacBook at educational discount uh, or anything like that. I mean, it is such an attractive offer. And it doesn't have any of the Windows management problems. It doesn't have the malware issues that Windows has. And it's powered by Linux. So it is such an attractive attractive solution it's just that issue of that damn tracking it's just uh just i don't know Ange, what do you think uh, if next year dylan goes into class and they issue him a chromebook how do you feel about that i i would be excited about it i i'm not too worried you know about at his age maybe if he were a little older it might be a little weird but um i think it would be fine so and this is just court you know this is just uh I, I hate to sort of play this role because I almost feel like I'm devil's advocate in here, but I'll, I'll fry a little bacon. Uh, how do you feel about the fact that Google will literally have a record of everything Dylan has done online from the age of seven forward? His entire – so when he's 45 years old, they'll have that entire history. Well, I mean, what would it really be used for? Like – could, I, don't I don't know. I have no. I'm just. I, I'm just. I'm just asking. 
I don't know. I mean, yeah, yeah, that is creepy, but it's um, hmm. used for marketing purposes might be fine-ish. What if it is used to model his personality so that they can better generate him real-time alerts to let him know when he needs to leave for work or when something in his in- inbox is important that he needs to respond to? And they can they can tell him that because they can model his personality based on 40 years of observation. Isn't that why we authorize? Isn't that why we sign terms and conditions? Be- you mean because I mean yeah I mean that's what we're allowing them to, to do yeah. to get that kind of to get that kind of um, service or uh, res- response from an app or program or whatever. I suppose I mean it's not necessarily bad to have that kind of insight. It's just weird because that means that there Someone is that was never off the grid. Yeah, they someone just, that had, didn't had an active choice, and people change a lot throughout their life, right? People sometimes have very radical positions that can change, or they have their religious views can change fundamentally. There can there can who you are when you were twenty is not necessarily who you are when you were thirty, and and thirty and forty, and, and ten and twenty, right? So it, there's there's something to being able to sort of be able to take, have control over who you are and what your identity is and who I am. I see a movie in all of that. That's like, it, that sounds like a great movie. <laughs> or the, maybe a scary the biggest, one. My biggest scare is we're moving towards crime prediction. I mean, this is all the intelligence services are being requested is to predict attacks and things like that. And when right. you have a massive profile, yeah. sometimes you're just doing some research and now you're yeah. on a list of something. And I don't, I don't recall – I don't remember if we've all decided we're supposed to pretend like Edward Snowden didn't happen and all those leaks didn't come out and all those things we learned didn't actually be learned. But if I recall, it seems like the intelligence agencies don't have that hard of a time going to Google and Yahoo and going, I would like to subpoena the records of Mr. Fisher. Uh, it seems like that has never been an issue for them. And so it might be a little bit of a stretch, but it's worth considering that in, a, in some regard, the information that these companies collect is available to the federal government. And now we have laws on the books called CISA, which allows the federal government to share all of that information and completely indemnifies the companies for sharing it. Now, I'm not saying that's going to happen. I am saying those are actual facts that we do know exist. And so it just is up to the people that are managing all of this stuff and how they decide to implement those rules and what decisions they make. And so we are now all trusting the goodwill of all of the different individual companies and federal employees that are in power. It and seems to me that there needs to be legislation to make it mandatory deletion at one certain time, that at least the person has some way of fighting this in court, otherwise it will always be like that. Trust and trust and trust. And, and so I feel like, you know, in the case of our kids, for Ange and I, we've, you know, we've already let our kids online and, you know, Dylan has access to YouTube and a Minecraft account. I mean, the, the the process has already started, and there's and maybe this is this is just perhaps the new reality of 2015 and forward. And so, uh, I I'm not saying I'm freaking out about it, but I'm just saying, okay, this is this is kind of the way I see it. Now we just have to be kind of practical about it. I, I don't know, Anne. Did you have any other kind of thoughts in, in that regard? Uh, I'm sorry, I was distracted. Oh, nice. All right. All right well, <laughs> well, let's shift gears and talk about something that is fascinating from a sort of server licensing standpoint. Software pricing has been in massive flux in the last few years, and server-grade software has not been immune to this flux. Windows Server 2016 is moving to a per-core not per socket licensing, per core. And remember, we're talking like these server Xeon chips where 12 cores is not uncommon. Not uncommon at all. And then you include hyperthreading. Uh, Windows Server 2016, uh, not likely to arrive until the second half of next year, is going to shake up the way Microsoft licenses its server operating systems, moving away from per socket licensing to per core. Uh, it says the two main additions here, which you may or may not be familiar, familiar with if you're not in this world, are standard, standard, and data center. There's some other variations, but standard and data center are the two ones that they sell the most of. They had identical features in the past with Server 2012. Uh, it only differed in two terms, and if, uh, like in the number of virtual machines that you could run. Standard supported two VMs only in addition to the host, right? Data center was unlimited VMs. That was like the big thing. They're otherwise, I, th- I think they're pretty much identical. And you just paid more if you wanted unlimited VMs. Starting with Windows Server 2016, it reinstates the functional difference between standard and data center additions. Data center will include additional storage replication capabilities, a new network stack with richer virtualization options, and shielded virtual machines that protect the content of the virtual machine from the administrator of the host operating system. Those won't be in standard. And then in second is the licensing per core instead of 
per socket. In 2016, if you use a two-core pack with the license cost of each 2016 pack being one-eighth the price of the corresponding two-socket pack of 2012. You guys following this all so far? It's really simple. Each system running Windows Server 2016 must have a minimum of eight cores or, you know, a minimum of 16 cores if you get the eight packs per system. Really, guys, it's super simple. And Microsoft doesn't understand why you don't, why you don't get it because this is now just going to be like how they charge for SQL Server. In other words, very expensive. Microsoft is making it very expensive. By the way, have you heard of Azure? Go check that out. Just wanted to note that. I thought that was interesting. And uh, I'm not sure if anybody really has any comments. I just kind of poke Microsoft a little bit because I'm still shocked that they have not figured out how to simplify their software licensing in a way that appeals to people that have to implement the software and buy it. It is one of the most frustrating things to work with in the technology field is Microsoft licensing. And here they are making it even more complicated. Mini rant over, but while we're talking about Microsoft, let's talk about Balmer. Balmer says things, and uh, he has some strong opinions about the direction of Microsoft's mobile strategy. So you guys heard, you guys may or may not have heard about Project Astoria. Uh, it's not received well, and it's not going very well, but the hope was to build Windows 10 apps and make them universal and port over to Android super easy. Who would want to do it? Who knows? But that was their hope, is to make it really easy to move Windows universal apps over to Android. And Balmer says this is probably not a good idea. He says it won't work, is the actual quote. Instead, he suggested Windows phones should run Android apps natively, which is a dramatic departure from the way he used to talk about things when he was CEO. And I wanted to, I don't know, do we have any Windows phone users in the mumble room? Sometimes we do in the morning here. Yeah? No? They're trying to get their phones to work. Ha! Uh, this is an interesting idea. Actually being able to natively run Android apps on Windows Mobile. I, it, what if, because we've seen BlackBerry try this, we've seen others try this, what if you took the resources of Microsoft and really made it a slick experience and really made Android apps full-fledged, first-class citizens on the mo- – they wouldn't look like Windows Mobile. But Daredevil, what do you think? Would that maybe help? I already made a, I already made a prediction here in Mumble, but I don't think I did it on the show, so I'm doing it right now. You can okay. – uh, five, to, five to ten years, but actually more in the line of five years, Microsoft will have a Linux distribution with a proprietary shell on Girl, top. Girl, What? Uh, and this is what's going to happen. Dude, Windows you're going full be... crazy. Now, hold on now. Hold on now. No. Hold on now. Hold on. I got to fry some bacon. That is re- you're telling me Microsoft is going to release a, dis- a distribution of Linux with like some Windows UI, like window manager on top of it? Yeah, exactly. Like a Windows what? experience on top. Because I don't like just look it up. What they're doing right <laughs> okay, now is they're, look it up. they're buying Android apps. <laughs> they, I mean, they're, they're buying Android apps. They are porting it to their system, and they have massive contributions to the kernel. They have their server infrastructure now on Linux, too. Uh, it seems like they're just getting the experience on how to develop Linux. Here's what I think. I think they're going to go all in on Android. I think it wouldn't be too surprising to see Android apps running on Windows Mobile. I think that could happen. And, in fact, this might even be a plant. Now, now I'm throwing some bacon down. What if, what if Balmer is still talking to people at Microsoft. Here's a crazy idea. What if maybe a few people still tell him what's up and he knows what's coming and now he's like, well, now I get to go out there and be the guy. He's like Waz for Apple. Waz goes out there and says something crazy about Apple. Everybody gets all upset and then Apple goes and does it and everybody's like, oh, good guy, Apple. Like that wasn't totally coming. Waz is still on the payroll. I bet Balmer's still on the payroll. We should look this up. I bet dude's still getting paid. I bet dude's supposed to go out there and say stuff like this and then we all start, oh, that's a good idea. That's a good idea. And then Microsoft does it and they've already greased the thing like butter. It all slides down into our mouths and we eat it deliciously. I think that's what's going on here. Microsoft's buttering us up for something that's coming down the road so that way they can shove it down our mouth. It's going to happen. Now, this desktop Linux business you're talking about, that's crazy. I'll tell you what's going to happen to the Windows desktop. Here's my prediction. Microsoft's going to come up with some Azure-inspired server software. I don't know what it's going to be based on. I'd be pretty surprised if Microsoft ever wants to have any of their core business stuff based on GPL. I think that's a no-go for Microsoft, but... mm, yeah, I just think that's a no-go for Microsoft. But I do think they're going to have some Azure-based, Unix-like designed operating system. And this is going to be a couple of years down the road, and it's going to be created for Azure-scale deployments, now available for on-premises installation. And it's going to be some, you know, really low-end or really low, small, low-level OS. And then when you want Windows, what they're going to do is they're going to sell this as like – they're going to sell on the desktop – Windows as a VM that rides on top of this Azure-based infrastructure. So even down at the desktop, on your laptop, you'll have cloud-inspired infrastructure and Windows running in a protected VM with snapshots and rollback. And so what they're going to do is they'll virtualize the Windows desktop 
And over time, they'll, that's how they'll maintain, you know, 32-bit and 16-bit and, and legacy compatibility with really, really, really old Windows code base. So then they'll be able to drag on all of their old customers who are still using Windows because there's only a Windows version application. And at the same time, in another virtual machine, and you could just make this like switch in between virtual desktops, they could have their new desktop environment that's maybe all modern UI or whatever the hell they want to call it at that time. It's not based on the Windows code base at all, right? But you could still run these universal applications on top of it. And I think you'll you'll be able to just switch between them sort of like you could use to switch between Windows and DOS back in the Windows 9 Windows 3 and Windows 95 days, but not quite that clunky. And I don't think it's going to be Linux based, but I think that's the future for the Windows desktop. And then on the server it's going to be this Azure like system which is essentially like a BSD kind of thing. I think this made my point though. It's cost effective for Yeah. Hmm. I mean, they will be not uh, having to uh, deal with too much of the uh, worries because there's a lot of people developing Linux. They will be focusing on the experience. They will have these uh, pretty much terminal, which you're renting, and you're using your personal account. We're moving to a world of personal accounts, not personal computers. And and there's going to be more and more things that are like, you know, just like created for Azure that will just work on the same thing. Exactly. So from that standpoint, it seems to me that, you know, they building a, a... a Windows shell, a proprietary shell on top to, to say this is a Windows product, a Microsoft product. And um, then you have, you know, whatever just runs. And Linux is the main contender out there. It scales well. It works on mainframes, in supercomputers, in smartphones. Seems the platform. They already ported their language where most of their apps are built in uh, to be open source and to work better with Linux. So it will just be drag and drop their apps, you know, change the underneath layer from their runtime to mono runtime. Once that gets to a point that it's uh, useful enough in Linux, there you go. Okay, so Angela's got to get rolling here because she's got to go take the car to get repaired. So before we get any further in the show, and we have a lot more coming up, including a device that turns any watch into a smartwatch. Uh, yeah, it's serious. I'm true. And also, popcorn time is back. So we'll talk about that as well. And couple other things wrapping up from years and years of stories from years and years ago actually but angela it is this the season of swag here at jupiter broadcasting and you have gone all out so i want you to have a chance to tell people about it before you got to run yep okay so it's uh swag for the holidays first of all uh on the screen there if you're watching this there's the jb1 christmas tree with an ornament representing every yep show that we have on the network uh, as well as a Jupiter Broadcasting one. And you know what I should have done is taken a picture of the back because each of them have something that relate to the show on the back, like Unfilter has bacon on the back. And it's pretty epic. Tech Talk today says, thank you, patrons. BSD now says the only place to BSD, you know, things like that. So, or faux show accidentally, the whole thing. Um, so anyway, the swag for the holidays, though, is uh, those gifts that you saw underneath that Christmas tree. I made a custom swag for each show, and I'm giving one away in each of the shows this month. The very first one that has a swag giveaway is is happening right now. It's TechSnap. As soon as that show was published last night, there was a link in the show notes. If you are a patron for Unfilter or Tech Talk today and you listen to TechSnap, you can go to the show notes, click on that bit, bit.ly link, um, and you just have to put your name, email address, and indicate which patron you are subscribed to, or both. And I will randomly draw a person to win. So um, there I'm is, going to... Re- there, is, uh, there is one swag that isn't wrapped. I won't say what it is, but there's one swag that isn't wrapped. Well, there. so I got two for Tech Talk today. Oh, okay. And just because some of these items won't be available internationally, uh-huh. so I have alternatives. But um, today's TechSnap one, it's going to be announced uh, in about 10 hours. So uh, so how do they get the swag? Because I, I, didn't, I didn't announce it in TechSnap, which I should have. Um, oh, it's okay. I, I meant to tell you in advance, mm-hmm. but that's okay. So, But that I means th- people listening to this show could take advantage of the TechSnap one because they've got a heads up. So how do they take advantage yeah. of it? Yeah, if you listen. I just said that. If you listen, I know. I'll tell, say them again because I, okay. I want to make sure they get it. If you like TechSnap and you'd like TechSnap-specific swag, you can go to the show notes on jupiterbroadcasting.com right now. There will be a link near the patron button, and you just click on that, put your name, email address, and which pa- uh, which Patreon page that you subscribe to right now. And then I will do a random draw in about 10 hours and reveal the item, the swag item that I created for TechSnap. Now, a will- couple of things. They have to have a successful payment uh, on Patreon. 
For November, yes. They have to have an active and successful payment for November. And what about, can they get in for December and maybe have one in January? How's that work? We, I am planning to possibly, depending on how the results of this go, and granted there aren't any um, huge problems with how this goes, we will do another one in January. So oh, okay. If, okay. if you barely heard about this and weren't sure about getting in on it and you like what you see, then you can do that for December. And if you're already a patron, then you're good to go. Yeah. And then uh, the other thing is you can only win once, right? Um, no, not necessarily. It's it's going to be a random draw. So um, right now I have about 17 people that are in it for the TechSnap swag, and it's only open for 24 hours after the show is oh, posted. Oh, okay, so, okay. Yeah. So, yeah, you have to get to that sh- the show notes link within 24 hours of the show being posted. And I made I made social network posts last night so that everybody, you know, could see and know and have an opportunity. So that'd be the other thing. Is which which where, where should they follow you online to if they miss it? Anywhere. And Jupiter Broadcasting anywhere. Facebook. Um, the TechSnap has its own page on Facebook. I did it there. G plus Instagram at Jupiter Signal on Twitter. Yep. OK. And uh, so not every show, like every each show will have it, but not every show. So like Unfilter was this week, but it didn't have the swag link. Probably the next Unfilter will. Hmm. I guess there's just like a little elf running around leaving yeah. links behind, huh? So just watch the show notes <laughs> and watch, watch for social network posts. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you, yep. Ange. So and and uh, so yeah, and at Jupiter Signal on Twitter to follow that. Look for the links in the show notes. And remember, if you enter in that in that show's show notes, you're entering for that type of swag, so like Tech Snap or yes, Bo or whatever. And they're all unique <laughs> swag, so you're not going to get like two of one thing for different shows. And they're but all also, kind of related to the show. They they're 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 like a callback to the show. Yep. And also, um, we are doing the last jackets again, and we we are offering it in the EU. Uh, there's a distribution areas over there so you can order it if you order it now in the u.s or the eu you will get it in time for christmas which is amazing so like you have like probably not very much time though to make that happen well you do well till december 13th okay so until december wow that's a wow look at teespring go that probably helps it yeah so there's two urls teespring.com slash last us and teespring.com slash last eu pick the one closest to you for the best shipping is essentially what it breaks down to yep exactly all right, that's cool. Yeah, the jacket was just a limited run, and uh, they're really, really comfortable. They're perfect. Yeah, they so, really are. Are you? You're going to give me some, right? Yeah. yeah okay. Good. Yeah. Well, and show the EU one because uh, <laughs> they have so many awesome colors. Available. Yeah, you I mean you could order from the EU if you're in the US. You could. You, you wouldn't it, it get it in get time for Christmas. Christmas. No. Yeah, but no. but you could get like a hot pink one or a lime green one or yeah. Or this green's pretty wicked even. Or uh, or they got the they got the classic bright bright obnoxious red. I kind of want purple. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know what, Ange? Seriously, why not? <laughs> we could get one from the E. We don't even have time for Christmas for ourselves. Come on. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I like. I do like the blue one too. Yeah. yeah. All right, yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna All head right. out. But thanks for joining uh, us. Yep. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Uh, okay. So uh, let's talk about this device that is uh, promises to turn anything into a smartwatch, any watch. It could be a 100-year-old watch. It's going to make it a smartwatch. It's, I think it's called the Kronos, and it's a silver disc you put under your watch. Let's check it out. So I'm, I'm curious to see if you guys oh, – oh, the BBC player. It goes poop. Oh, there it goes. So you see, you put it under the wrist there, and they're probably going to pull us down. BBC is the worst about that, even though there's news. Uh, and you, you put it under your watch. Underneath this ordinary watch, and you can barely tell it's there, although it does raise up your watch a little bit. A lot. It as thin as possible by putting... It does wireless charging. charging. That's kind of nice. ...basic interactions too, so I can tap the watch to skip my music or take a photo in the camera. Well, let's talk to the co-founder. Mark, there's no screen on this device, no voice control. Will that limit how useful it is? Um, we worked really hard. On so it's like a screenless notification machine. Uh, and you could have some basic playback controls like he mentioned. And the idea is you take a really nice watch or maybe not such a nice watch and you make it super tacky by having uh, LED flashing lights and a, and a vibrator that slips out from underneath it when it vibrates. And you have yourself something the BBC is thinks is worth running. It's called Sticky Dicks. <laughs> Disc. <laughs> It's called Sticky Dick, and you put it under your watch. Mumble Room, am I just a uh, curmudgeon, or would you buy a Sticky Dick? 
I'm not touching that one with a ten. <laughs> all right, all right. Really, no, I'm <laughs> sticky. No, dish. that's just horrible, Chris. <laughs> I only have one use case for this. What is it? Okay, even thank that you. use case is bad. Oh, <laughs> see, I've actually recently been talking with uh, some music, uh, dance music schools. Uh, pretty much, they have no adoption of remote controls apparently for hmm. their classes. And if this can send notifications back to something else, then it might have uh, some yeah. possibility yeah, okay. to be you know, that you, use you, case. You make it, uh, I don't see anything. If you make it actually attached to the watch somehow, so that way it's not slipping up from underneath, you make it 30 bucks, not 100 bucks. Um, maybe it could be useful. It just it looks like it takes a watch and makes it tacky. You know, or why not build it into a set of uh, a line of stylish wristband uh, watch bands? There you go. That, that um, would be money. Up their business model because there's a lot of standardized watch band wristband uh, connectors. So yeah, that would be money. I wanted to uh, I wanted to cover something that's not about sticky discs at all. It's about sticky lawsuits. Uh, you guys remember the good old patent wars between Samsung and Apple? I mean, they started when Jobs was still alive, and. Uh, this is just finally yeah, coming to an end. Finally. <clears throat> so, yeah, this is this is these original after uh, almost five years after Apple originally sued Samsung for infringing smartphone patents. It seems like South Korea, the South Korean manufacturer is going to have to pay up in a joint court statement from both companies. Samsung has confirmed they will pay Apple five hundred and forty eight million dollars before December 14th if it receives a good old invoice from the iPhone maker. Before this weekend, Apple originally sued Samsung in the spring of 2011, which is one of many cases. In 2012, the court found in Apple's favor, judging that Samsung had infringed on the company's patents for features such as tap-to-zoom and multi-touch gestures. Apple asked for $2.5 billion. Since then, they're way more rich, and so they don't care about money as much. And so they were awarded a billion dollars. But after various appeals from Samsung, both parties bounced back figures here over there over the years. And Samsung has finally whittled it down to $930 million, And then finally, they got it down to $548 million in May of this year. And so now they have to pay up. Even though they think they might fight it still, they're going to have to pay up. There you go. Isn't it funny after five years and all this crap in the press... And all of the fanboys taking their different positions. After all of the millions of dollars these clown companies spent in the clown court system, it comes down to, yeah, send us an invoice and we'll write you a check. Like after all of this complex legal stuff and all of these lawyers and all of this news, it just comes down to, yeah, just send us an invoice. Isn't that weird? <laughs> That's just weird. I mean, we know where the real problem is in the justice system. Real problems in the justice system, unfortunately. And companies like Samsung, I mean, in one way, it was bad that they had to do it for five years, but I'm glad that they did it just for one single reason. At least they fought and they lowered that price. Imagine if you were a smaller company. You know, you just got out of business. Well, that price, that price and, was, uh, that price was that set based on revenue, that, right? So the price yeah. was only that high because they were Samsung. Yeah, but at the same token, it's like, yeah, uh, come on. It's not something super unique. It, there, yeah, the, yeah there, I guess. It, the studies even show that the things that should have been patented are, are, were already patented. Yeah, I agree like with you on that. Or yeah. something like that. I agree. I think, you know, I recall, though, I remember when this lawsuit really started blowing up back, back then. And I went out uh, that Christmas and I got a really good deal on a Samsung Galaxy Tab. And I was curious what it was like compared to the iPad uh, or something. I can't remember really at the time. I was just curious what it was like. And I remember taking it home and I almost felt dirty using it because I remember booting it up and it was like the they had, they had used even the same icons and they had completely ripped off the launcher and they even ripped off the 30-pin connect. They made their own proprietary 30-pin Samsung connector and like the camera, every single, the camera app and every single, like the, the app store and all of it was a complete and total iOS UI ripoff. And I remember thinking, how can they get away with this? And so you can say that Apple did or didn't bring something to the market or didn't, didn't invent it first, but you can't deny that they got it patented first, apparently. 
Uh, and that's what the legal system's looking at. Um, and uh, you also can't argue that there were Samsung phones before the iPhone and then there were Samsung phones after the iPhone and they dramatically changed. And same with the Android line. I mean, we've gone down this line a lot and I don't necessarily think – I'm not glad that Apple was able to use a patent system like this. I think it's, I think it's chicken shit, but I think it's the way the system works right now. What was their, uh, Especially there was a, looking how Apple grew. Yeah. It makes me sick. Every Pretty single time. Any company that in the tech world that goes and pretty much uses the IP system to, to leverage weight, it, it seems to me that they're forgetting how they exist. And it seems to me that it's actually bad for users because contrary to copyright, patents actually affect the customer as well. It's yeah. not the company responsible. So if you have own a device that is patenting infringement, you can actually have to pay for it. So it seems to me uh, ludicrous that they do this type of behavior. I think you know the history of that is fascinating. Um, there is a there is a really interesting um, history in Apple where they were very patent poor, and uh, they really didn't patent much at all. And then I, I can't remember exactly, but I think they got the snot beat out of them in the legal system by Adobe over uh, their uh, the laser printer that Apple shipped. I can't remember exactly postscript or I can't remember exactly what it was that got them. This is so long ago now that got them in the in the legal system and Apple was just taken taken to the washing to the washers. Yeah, like they were just beat to hell. And then after that, they started amassing an incredible patent war chest and just started patenting everything. That was the line from Steve Jobs: "We're going to patent everything." Uh, and I think they realized they got to a size where. You just can't use – you can't not use the system because otherwise you you just get creamed. I mean I'm not I, – I think what the issue is, is is the system. And, you know, I, I go back to – I the reason why – at the same at the same level though, I, I, don't, I don't like totally downplaying the innovation that Apple did bring to the market. When they released the iPhone, Steve Ballmer laughed at it and people said that, you know, it didn't have a keyboard. It was never going to work. And the number one complaint was the screen was too big. The 3.5-inch screen was too big. And there was a, you know, there were there was well, there were Android devices before the iPhone was launched, and then there was Android devices after the iPhone was launched. And the devices before the iPhone was launched were BlackBerry-like devices. They were Android was essentially ripping off BlackBerry. That's why the first Android devices shipped with a ball pointer mouse thingy because they were so far down that path. They had the Moonshot project and they had the Realistic project, and they had to end up going with the Moonshot project that was very rough. And it took Android years and years and years to really become a good touch interface. So there was some innovation done there. But, now, you know, and it, maybe guess, maybe the five hundred million dollar figure is to, much more reasonable than the than the two billion dollar figure. That seems like that's probably a little more reasonable. Okay, so uh, the reason I say the system doesn't work is just because most of the big companies make uh, deals with each other to use each other's patents. Yeah, we're definitely seeing that now. That it doesn't work. It's this is supposed this is supposed to help a little guy that comes up with something new have actually a say in the market, not just be outbid on you know I created these after you by ripping up your product and I can do it. But this is not the case. Only big players are doing, and the big players cross license each other and they still bully the little ones. Mm-hmm. So the patent system that is supposed yep. to make the little one with a voice is not doing that. Now we're saying that it's okay. Yeah, seems, seems to me counterproductive. No, I, I think it's I think it's a symptom of the same problem. It's a it's a horrible thing because this is the the patent wars that they had back in two thousand eleven uh, led to all these huge massive cross licensing agreements. And since then, Nortel fell, and then the Microsoft and Apple consortium bought up all the Nortel patents. And then Samsung and Google signed their ten year patent licensing agreement. And there's been you know new foundations set up with patent. I mean, it's all changed since all of this started. It's it's a mess now. And it's a huge tax on business. But that's boring. And I want to talk about people that are completely bucking the system. And that's Popcorn Time. Popcorn Time Community Edition is now a thing. Uh, you know what Popcorn Time is. They don't really tell you what it is on this GitHub page. And when you go to their, web t- when you go to their website, uh, popcorntime.ml, you get a Star Wars trailer and a link to buy tickets on Fandango. That's, that's what their website is. Oh, here it is. Get a little more down here. It's pretty cute, though. Uh, they're trying, you know, they're obviously trying to uh, get things rolling again. So this is a community edition of Popcorn Time that allows you to basically watch any movie, uh, probably illegally. And the reason why I cover this is 
this is the this is the initiative that just won't die. Is this like the third or fourth big iteration of this now? After you know, oh, it's 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 down, it's down, it's been it's been killed. Now here it is again. It's popcorn time. It's back. So uh, we'll have a link in the show notes if you're curious about that. I think it's a, I think it's a phenomenon. Here we are talking about patent systems and and caps and all of this stuff. And meanwhile, uh, at the other end of the spectrum, this that kind of thing continues on. It uh, it's like it's like two different worlds out there. It is one of the magics about GPL is that it, uh, or actually any free software license, is that invalidates patent. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, if you make it first and you publish first, it invalidates the ability of patenting that. And not only so, not only does it not only does it not only is it a patent solution, but look at look at how look at look at how resilient it is to the MPAA. And all of their efforts to shut it down and shut it down and get it out of the system. But the code is open and it's out there and it's been shared. And so people just keep restarting it. And they even acknowledge the original project on their GitHub page saying we wouldn't, we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for the original code. You can't kill the idea. So – and there's code out there now. Like there's nothing they can do. They can keep shutting down individual GitHub pages or backend infrastructures or VPN providers or trackers or whatever. But it just – it just keeps happening. And then people over things like Reddit and social media can easily tell new users about it. And it gets a whole new user base within two days. <laughs> it's back up and running. Uh, it, I find it to be astonishing. And I think it's only possible because it's open source. You couldn't have done this with something that was closed source. And when you killed the original project and the infrastructure behind it, it would be gone. It'd be done. But because this runs over a peer-to-peer file sharing system and the, and the front end code is open source, it can't stop the signal, man. Can't stop the signal. Uh, it's just the a flash wound. is also open source. It's actually PeerFlick. PeerFlick? Is that what it is? Hmm. PeerFlick, yes. It's the back end of uh, Popcorn. Yeah. Uh, well, like Andrew was just talking about, patreon.com slash today if you'd like to support this show and all of the other shows on the Jupiter Broadcasting Network. This is where we go to raise funds for the inf- infrastructure of the network. Patreon.com slash today. Get involved in the swag giveaway. And there's also swag club members. And uh, we get hooked up with swag on a routine basis. TechTalkToday.reddit.com is where you go to uh, submit stories or a Kickstarter of the week. And uh, I have a Kickstarter of the week follow-up. So it is technically not a new Kickstarter, but it is a follow-up to a Kickstarter in the past. Uh, You guys in the uh, Mumble Room are probably familiar with the Onion Omega by now. Anybody in there know what I'm talking about? The Onion Omega. It's a tiny, tiny PC. A tiny PC. Smaller than the Raspberry Pi. It's like 25 bucks. It was a previous Kickstarter, uh, and it's... It's actually if you guys aren't familiar with it, I have the previous video. I'll play just I've played this on, on unplugged, so I'll play just a brief moment because first of all, it's a kick-ass Kickstarter video and uh, it explains a little bit what it is. And then I had a chat with Alan on the live stream of TechSnap yesterday about his Onion Omega obsession. He's obsessed with it. I'll, sh- I'll tell you what he's using it for. But here's a little refresher about the device first. <clears throat> go go go. There are two worlds, the real world and the digital. And then there's the cat world. Oh, the lovely cat world. The problem with the two worlds is that in order to connect objects in the real world with the digital world, you need to be a rocket scientist or some sort of physicist from the Manhattan Project or one of those brains in a jar. But not anymore. Meet Onion. For the past year, we've been hard at work building something that's small, affordable, and really easy to use so that we can merge the two worlds together. We wanted to be like Tony Stark and be able to build whatever comes to our mind without learning how to build these things. And that is exactly why we created this. The Onion Omega. Thanks, Oliver. It's a tiny computer with built-in Wi-Fi and it runs the Linux operating system. This little bad boy lets you create connected devices in environments that you're already familiar with using tools such as SSH, Git, and NPM. And it also allows you to write software in Python, Node.js, PHP, or whatever language you feel comfortable with. 
So it really is tiny, tiny. And then it has a, sp- a series of expansion docks that add different functionality to it. And uh, I was just getting mine out of the box. And this is just a casual chat I was having with Alan in between segments on the TechSnap show. And we live stream that uh, every Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific. And in between segments, we sometimes just chit-chat about stuff. And we don't ever release that. Uh, it's just sort of the, the format of the TechSnap show. But I did happen to capture a little bit of our sort of off-the-cuff casual chat. And I wanted to play it for you because Alan has turned into a hardcore Onion Omega fan. And he is doing some really slick stuff with his. Okay, Alan. So I've got the Onion Omega here. Uh, and I got the dock and the mini dock. Mm-hmm. Do you have the Ethernet expansion, though? I don't think so. And what the hell well, can they- I... What the hell can I do with this thing that's worth doing? That's, guess, that's my question, because I was thinking about trying to talk about it on last, but I don't have anything to say. Well, you didn't buy any of the useful expansion by the sound of it. I guess not. I got, so what so I have here... Wi-Fi. So what I have here, yeah, I got, and it looks like I have USB and maybe micro HDMI there. No, nope. uh, you have a USB and the other one's a mini USB. Oh, so I don't even have, I don't even have HDMI out. Well, no, it doesn't have a video card. Yeah, I guess it wouldn't. It's serial only. So... That that USB, the small one that yeah. you use like a phone charging cable. Yeah, is that when you plug you that into your computer, it will be a serial port. Oh, and you'll be able to connect to the device and control it. And plus, it has Wi-Fi and a web interface. And what would I do with it once I have it? What would you? Well, most of the useful things are the expansions, right? Like, uh, <clears throat> there's this expansion, the relay expansion, and those it lets you turn devices on and off with it. Oh, that's or cool. There's a PDM, PWM expansion. Uh, looks like, <clears throat> excuse all the wires coming out of it, but it looks like this. Um, and I'm using that to build a fan speed controller and control the brightness of this little green LED you see flopping around. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah, okay. so I can control the brightness of the LED or the speed of the fan with the PWM. And are you still using OpenWRT? So it's whatever I could run on OpenWRT, no, right? Yeah, uh, I've erased the Linux off here and put FreeBSD on. Oh, of course, of course. But... Uh, I can flash it back as well. Because I flashed it back when I was trying to get the uh, the relays to work to turn lights on and off. Yeah. Because now that I have the second set of Tetris things, it came with a second power adapter. And because I'm only using the one power adapter right now, <laughs> yeah. I'm slightly more comfortable with splicing some stuff into the second power adapter. I see, I see, I so see. So I might hook it up so that I can turn that on and off from the Omega. Now, uh, Not that that's all that useful. So but. besides turning lights on and off, like I could... Could I run a server on this thing? It's got a 400 yes, megahertz it's processor. Got, it's only got 64 megabytes of RAM, but yes, yeah. you can run a server off of it. So what else can I use this for besides automating lights? Well, it, it's it's an Internet of Things device. It's designed to do something in an automated fashion. Uh, I'm probably going to hook one of mine up to do with uh, temperature sensors and put it in my server room so I can monitor temperatures remotely. Hmm. Uh, the other one now, are those temperature sensors up, sold by them, or is that something you're going to wire it? Because I know they have lots of ex- get my own. Okay, and you uh, have yeah, they, they have a, they, they have quite a few expansions. Uh, one of the other ones I got today was a one inch OLED screen for just displaying little things. Oh, that's nice. So you have an uh, Ethernet expansion? Yes. Yeah, so I have, and the they all Ethernet. stack. Is it? Do you have one near you? Yep. So my I have a I also have a mini dock, which so basically is just is. Uh, yeah, it's just a mini dock. So yeah. the regular dock, here's the device, and then on stacked on it, I have the Ethernet port, right? And then this is the relay for turning things on and off, cool. and then that can just stack on top of that. That is cool. Right, and then I have the servo one, which is too tangled up for me to do something with right now. But and then yeah, I have there's an OLED expansion. There's uh, the servo one is meant to control like robotic arms or things like that, uh, but I'm using it just to build a fan speed control. So your intention is to use one to do... So you're going to have one that has like an Ethernet port on it, and then you're going to have FreeBSD running on it, and then what software are you going to use to do temperature monitoring? Uh, Well, the the software is built into FreeBSD, but I'll get some of these... uh, They're called one-wire temperature sensors. Okay. And I'll hook them up to it, to the GPIO parts, and then be able to monitor the temperature and, you know, feed that into my Nagios or whatever and tell me, hey, the server room's getting warm, and maybe the air conditioner broke down or whatever. And those those GPI port, GPIO ports, they are they are, exposed to the operating system as what? How does the OS know you have something plugged into which port? Right. So you see uh, on the dock, if you don't have any expansions in, you see the, all the purple things labeling all the ports in the yeah. dock port. Yeah. All the ones that are just a number, those are the GPIO ports that you can hook up to do whatever. And those are exposed to the OS as? Yeah, as 
GPIO ports, the same as like on a Raspberry Pi, and then you just write your software to do whatever. Oh, okay. So there's like a there's like a controller on here that the OS has a driver for for those ports. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and so like uh, you can plug LEDs directly into these, like, like between the GPIO and like uh, yeah. a voltage or in uh, ground, and then I can just turn the LED on and off with that and stuff like that. And are you just and 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 what's the interface for you to build it on the computer side? What's the interface for you to build turn the LED on and off? Like, are you just catting to a file a one or what's uh, like? You can, yep. Uh, when it's hooked up in FreeBSD, yeah, you just echo one to slash dev slash LED slash yeah, echo. Yeah, echo. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> however, there's other um, the Onion Omega. If you use their firmware image, it has a bunch of tools built in to do all this stuff, and right. they have a web interface right. where you'll be able to do it all. From a browser oh, on your computer. That's, over the, the that's on this image that comes pre-installed. Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, I think you'll update it to get a newer version, but yeah. So oh, okay. you can on, on the end. You see the end that looks kind of almost like it plugs into something, but doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. Of the actual Omega itself, that's yeah. the wireless antenna. Ah. So it's actually a wireless host as well. So it's it's an access point. Right. So you can connect to it and do configure stuff it that way. Yeah. But it's it's the Athros chip is the one that. It can be an access point at the same time it also connects to your other Wi-Fi. Hmm. So it's a mini wireless bridge. So it's able to be connected to a network to get internet access, but still then allow you to connect to it to configure it. Yeah. That is really nice. Or, and it can pass through the two. So you could use it to do some light internet traffic shaping or something like that. The mini dock is actually kind of nice because if I only need USB and I don't need the GPIO ports for anything at the moment, the mini dock gives me everything I need for that. Yeah, uh, the big dock, you you don't really see them because they're small, but kind of just above the USB port, not the USB port, the mini one that powers it, Mm -hmm. see this little kind of square thing? Switch? uh, Not the switch. Oh, okay. Uh, Well, there's a reset button and a switch, which is helpful, but kind of in the up here... There's this white and black thing. Yeah, yeah. What is that? A speaker or what is that? No, that's a three-colored LED. It has a red. Ah, yeah. Okay, sure it is. Of course. That you can control from in the operating system and set the brightness of all three of those. And you can kind of make any color. That's cool. Yeah. That was one of the first things I did with it was just play with these LEDs. Well, that kind of makes me want to play with this thing, Alan. And I've used the – I can read the value of the reset switch uh, in FreeBSD. the B- default image is already hooked up to like reset the device, but on BSD I don't have that hooked up yet. I mean, this is really remarkable. This is really look how small that is. It's a lot of fun for a couple dollars. Yeah, and you've bought a few expansions. It sounds like. So how many yeah. do you have now? Just one and a bunch of expansions, or do well, you have I a couple? Have, I have two Omega. The second stuff just came today, so oh. now I have two Omegas with two expansion docks, one mini dock, uh, two Ethernet expansions, two relay expansions, one servo, and one OLED. Uh, and how many folks are actually using it with FreeBSD? Is that a very big thing yet? Uh, as far as I know, like three. Yeah, so you're one of three? <laughs> uh, well, most people haven't got theirs yet, right? Uh, right, yeah, of you, course. If if you signed up as part of the Kickstarter, you should have yours now. That's where I got mine. Is Obviously, I backed the Kickstarter. So there you go. I haven't really done much with it yet because I don't know what I'm going to do with a low-power machine like that. I kind of like the temperature sensor thing, especially out in the rover where uh, it's a little prone to being sensitive to freezing. So I was kind of tempted to maybe build something out there. I don't know. And it's low power. Uh, but yeah, it's a pretty, um, I guess if nothing else, I'm, in, I'm impressed they shipped on time. The packaging was really well done. The documentation is well done. Uh, the, the docs are actually, you know, you can actually get them. They're shipping. Like they're actually executing on the, and, and delivering on this Kickstarter. And at the end of the day, it is a tiny, awesome little computer that is smaller than something in the palm of your hand. It. It easily fits in the – I mean, it's, it's a really kind of a neat thing. So uh, that's the Onion Omega, and uh, it was fun chatting with Alan about that. So uh, anyways, that brings us to the end of the Tech Talk Today show. I've been enjoying these Friday shows. I, I seriously don't know what I would have done if I was doing this show daily this week. I mean, what the hell would I have talked about this week? It's like the worst news week ever after, after Thanksgiving. Uh, and it's always slow. Uh, like I, I, I mean – uh, you got to respect guys like Tom Merritt who do it every day, every day. Of course, and, you know, I, I also couldn't talk about Facebook two or three times a week. I, I <clears throat> once a week is better about my max. So, uh, but the, the Friday ones doing nice long ones, taking our time, having fun. I think that's been really good. So I'm going to come back next Friday. Go to jupiterbroadcasting.com/calendar to get the times in your local time. I'd love to have you join us live and hang out in the Mumble Room. Thanks, Mumble Room, for being here, you guys. And uh, don't forget about the Patreon if you don't want to get it, if you want to get it on the swag giveaway. Watch for those links and follow at Jupiter Signal on the Twitters. 
All right, we got a Linux Action Show coming up later today on the stream. Big show, a lot of fun. I'm really excited for our topic. And I want to leave you with a video game intro that gets me excited every time I hear it. There is a game on the Super Nintendo that came from the arcade that was a genuinely good port, a genuinely good game. They've even recently remade it for the Xbox. Uh, and if you're, if you're of the uh, Nintendo era when that was a product, you may remember this video game. And you got it. Let me know in the comments. Let me know in the comments if, come on, this is like the, the one of the best, maybe the, in your top three. Is this in your top three Super Nintendo games or uh, games of that? It doesn't have to be Super Nintendo, but games of that era. Leave a comment if you're over on YouTube and let me know because I think it's maybe my number three. So I'm wondering if it's in your top three. It was a great game.